Never let Deanna Troy drive, otherwise she'll wrap the Enterprise around a planet. Radio Drome. Tonight, Thursday's Radio Drome will go where no man has gone before. And yes, I'm sticking with the very sexist 60s opening. Now, Jowski, where has no man gone before if they want to get some sex toys at a really, really good price? Well, hopefully every man has gone to adamandeve.com and used the promo code DROME to get 50% off a single item, three free DVDs, free shipping in the U.S., and a free mystery gift. Promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. You can hear Alex is here. And also we have First Officer Cecil T. Uh, reporting for duty or something or other. Aye, aye, Captain. That's it. You're on the away team. <laughs> Shit. Red shirt. A little bit of background. Obviously, I think Star Trek, the TV series, is arguably the most popular show of all time. It's the most recognizable. It's one of the only ones that's played in syndication for almost 50 years straight. We're all familiar with the classic Trek TV series, which only lasted three seasons, and then where it, it didn't lay dormant. There was the animated series, there was novels, etc., etc. And then after the success of Star Wars, it was decided that they would make a movie. This was they were already trying to make a rebooted TV series called Phase Two, but that didn't really go anywhere. And then in 1979, they made at the time the most expensive film of all time at 26 million dollar budget, Star Trek: The Motion Picture, released in 1979, or as Harlan Ellison so perfectly put it, Star Trek: The Motionless Picture, because nothing happens in this movie. Well, stuff does happen. After a while, I mean, there's so much sitting through boring stuff for that there's, like, no payoff to make up for it. I uh, See, I liked the, the motion picture. I thought it was cool. It kind of expanded the scope of the original series. It was obvious they had a, a lot more money. Um, $26, $26 million in 1979 money, well, 78 when they would have shot it. That was a lot of money. Oh, it was a monstrous amount of money. Like I said, I, th- th- this was the most expensive film of all time at that point. And you look at it now, I mean, aside from a few sketchy things here and there, I still think it's a damn good looking film. And I didn't mind the pacing of it. I thought it, it kind of uh, it went along and it, it did a little bit more uh, going into the, the history of the characters. And uh, I, I mean, it, it yeah, it could have been trimmed a little bit, but that was I'll take that pacing of a movie versus the nonstop three second edits that we get now. This film was was trouble right from the beginning because they'd been trying to make it since Star Wars came out in 77 and it took them almost full almost two full years to finally get it made and there were so many behind the scenes problems. For one, they could not come up with a story because every single story they brought to them, Roddenberry had I think I think they said 20 or 30 different writers pitch stories to Paramount. What The last one was even Harlan Ellison, which, as he put it, if Gene was coming to me for ideas, you knew they were in trouble. Their idea actually had them blowing up the entire universe. The Paramount executive who would okay it said, we need something bigger than that. And that shows you the problem right there. Everything had to be, we had to be bigger than Star Wars. We had to be bigger than Star Wars. So you had that. The movie started shooting with no script. DeForest Kelly was on Tomorrow with Tom Snyder and actually said, we have a start date next month. They are still writing the script. The sets are already built, and we do not have a script yet. You can kind of tell when you watch the movie about that. Then you run into the nepotism. Paramount apparently, I don't want to say this movie was full of, this movie was made for fanboys. It was made for the people at Paramount. You guys remember the first scene in the movie after the Klingons get eaten by V'ger? The first scene of a human talking is a horrendous line delivery by a Starfleet officer that's like, Sir, we have a disturbance on the Klingon border. So the first human you have talking in your movie is the girlfriend of the president of Paramount. The entire film is full of that. 
Every non-main character is made up of the brother, son, wife, husband, daughter, uncle of somebody at Paramount. This film was non-stop nepotism. They thought, my, my, my grandson loves Star Trek. Let's have him in this. And his line deliveries are like, phasers to full power, Captain. So right there, you've got the most expensive film of all time. Bringing back the arguable most, arguable most popular TV series of all time, and you fill it with non-actors because we're Paramount and we can do whatever we want. Then there was the problem of the script, or lack thereof. You'll notice, unless, it, unless you were Decker, Spock, McCoy, or Kirk, you had nothing to do in this film. Walter Koenig said every day he'd come to the set and find more and more of his lines given to Decker or some other character. You'll notice Chekhov does not have one thing in that movie that is not like, phasers firing, Captain full power, Captain shields up, Captain... This, was, this movie was a disaster as a Star Trek movie, both on screen and off. The final film, with everything you just said, it is boring, and a lot of those production problems show, because it's just trying to get, like, everybody has to have some screen time. We gotta make sure everybody gets in there at least once, even this producer's second cousin, and it just, the whole thing drags. So when there is story... You know, it eventually pops up after, you know, you get to see the Enterprise for 10 minutes. That thing's like four and a half minutes of just Kirk and Scotty going, wow, look at the Enterprise. And I bet in 1979 in theaters, it was kind of impressive in 1979 in theaters. But there's just so much of those those shots of like that and moments like that, like when they go through like the V'ger cloud forever. It's like, they better show her tits or something, or it's not going to be worth it no matter what's at the other end of this. Movie's rated G, so that's not going to happen. I, I've always had a soft spot for it. I understand that, you know, there was a ton of production woes and uh, just putting everybody and their nephew in it. still think that the end result turned out good. Not, like, great. Like, I mean, I when I was a kid and saw it, I thought it was amazing. But as I got older and watched it again, I still really enjoyed it. But there were definitely better movies. Uh, it was a shaky start, and it's a shame that it had to go through all that. But I think that the, you know, the movies that came after that did a much better job of capturing the essence of Star Trek. Special effect money shots where they show stuff a little too long. Sometimes dialogue gets transferred to different characters. I don't know. It, it, it doesn't... I guess if if that was the only Star Trek movie, it probably would bother me more because it was like, oh, they they fumbled this attempt and we never got another one. But obviously that didn't happen, so it doesn't bother me too much. I think one of the largest problems with this movie was Robert Wise. Not that he's a bad director at all. I think he's a fantastic director. But he directs arguable art films and slow movies. You look at The Sound of Music... Andromeda Strain, which I think is a fantastic film, but is an ungodly slow movie. You look at The Haunting. All of his all of his movies are very slow. And so Roddenberry wanted to compete with Star Wars by making an art film. And I think very quickly he learned, I screwed up. Robert Weiss visually might have been right for this film. He's totally wrong for making this a Star Trek movie. And see, the, the thing with Star Trek The Motion Picture was it was Star Trek fans hated it because nothing happened and it was very untrue to the series that they were that the series that they had left. And then your general audiences hated it because it was too rooted into Star Trek. The film was successful enough that it made money, but it didn't really make anyone happy. Well, then after that, it took him a couple of years because, like I said, they were not happy with how motion picture turned out. And they did Wrath of Khan. And I think they very wisely decided to mine the TV series again. They're like, well, one of the best episodes in syndication, one of the episodes that routinely performs the best, is Space Seed with Khan. Well, Ricardo Montalban is, you know, really big again because of Fantasy Island. Let's see if we can do this. And they decided to make a sequel this time for Star Trek fans that was also accessible to the mainstream. With motion, motion picture, it was, we want to make an arguable mainstream film that happens to be accessible to Star Trek fans. Do you see how right off the bat swapping those is a very smart move? 
Well, yeah, because then they went on to make the best Star Trek movie of the original cast. Well, it gave them something they could make an actual exciting story around that they could build a lot from just what they had there. That they didn't have to go from scratch with that V'ger stuff, which, you know, it's intriguing, but there's not a lot of excitement to that story, not a lot you can do. With Khan, they had a open, you know, blank slate. They could do whatever they wanted, and it was basically going to write itself and be fun. And see, the thing with Wrath of Khan that I like is it's a lot more ballsy of a Star Trek film. You guys remember the scene where Dr. McCoy and where McCoy and Kirk find all of the scientists that were murdered on regular one, all hanging upside down with blood and gore dripping down from them in dark lighting? That's like a horror movie scene, isn't it? That's not what you think of when you think of Star Trek. And I'm saying that in a positive way. Or all that shit they put in people's ears is like the things that dig into like Chekhov's brain. Yeah, and, and Paul Winfield. Don't discount Paul Winfield. Yeah, definitely. It, it, it had a, a creepier vibe to it because it made Khan and, and his team seem that much more vicious when you saw like these things that they were doing and then their aftermath. It was like, okay, these aren't guys that we really should trifle with. We, you know, we need to take this seriously. Like, this is not going to be a lighthearted adventure. People are dying here. People are getting mind control slugs put into their head. Paul Winfield uh, vaporizes himself. Yeah, Paul. Yeah, exactly. Paul Winfield kills himself for crying out loud. Okay, Star Trek II is considered the best movie in the Star Trek canon. I don't know if I'd go best, but I'd go in the top two or three. I love this movie. I think it is it is fantastically paced. It's exciting without ever feeling like you're leaving character on the floor. It's it's very much a character driven piece. For once, all of the characters actually get scenes where they seem like they're the correct characters. So you don't have that Chekhov is only here to to raise shields nonsense that you had in the motion picture. And Wrath of Khan, it looks fantastic. It's very exciting. It had the ballsy-ass move of killing Spock, which was a pretty ballsy goddamn move, move for 1982, in all honesty. Because I think more than Kirk, Spock was kind of the face of Star Trek. He was the one that moved into pop culture. So to kill him the way they did, and keep in mind, originally they did not have the out with the Katra. That was added after test audiences didn't like Spock being dead dead. So Spock being dead was a pretty ballsy move for Star Trek II. Absolutely. Although I would say, like, back then, Spock was really the Star Trek guy. Whereas now, you know, years later, I think it's kind of shifted more towards Kirk. So... But yeah, definitely back then, killing Spock was just a major thing that no one expected to happen. Killing Spock, yes, that was an amazing plot twist there. Um, unfortunately, I would have I would have loved to see this movie when it came out as a Star Trek fan. I did because I'd seen Voyage Home was the first one I ever watched, so I know Spock comes back because look, he's in the sequels. So it didn't have the jaw dropping effect that they wanted for me because I already you know, knew what af happened after. I would have loved to have that experience and go, oh, shit, they killed Spock? What? I was seven when this came out, and I remember my mom taking me to this, and I was I was in tears, you know? It was like, you killed Spock, Mr. Spock. Then I'm like, then there's no Star Trek left. You know, he is the heart of Star Trek. One of the funny things is, again, going to test audiences, you guys notice the scene at the beginning when they're doing the Kobayashi Maru maneuver and Spock dies and McCoy has that line, aren't you dead? That was actually done because a reporter who was on the set while they were shooting that leaked that they killed Spock. So they went and reshot some of those early scenes to have Spock, quote, die in the beginning. So then people would go, oh, that's what that leak was. Oh, all right, all right. Then when he dies, dies, they go, you got me. In fact, I always thought it was like, that's clever foreshadowing, but I didn't know it was no, PR that scene, damage no, that, that scene was added and That scene was added after the fact because of the leaked plot detail. Yeah, it was PR damage control, actually, and clever at that. Good for them. They were able to put that fire out because then it, that would have sucked. You know? There's nothing worse than uh, 
having something major like that come along and then uh, everybody goes in and they just expect it. So now it doesn't have that impact that it would have if nobody knew. Well, speaking of that, let's move on to 1984's The Search for Spock. First of all, you've got a bunch of problems right off the bat. By the way, I do really do like Star Trek III, so I'm not bitching about the film. But the title, The Search for Spock, right there you're kind of telling people, he's going to come back. And then the trailers show him still alive again. Okay, well, that ruined that. And then the biggest point, the Enterprise blowing up. The symbol of Star Trek gets destroyed. Leonard Nimoy, who directed the film, wanted that to be kept a plot spoiler, that you do not show this. Paramount's advertising department went, no, this is they. This is what's going to get people in the theater. They want to know why the Enterprise blows up. Not that it blows up, they want to know why. They even wanted to put the Enterprise blowing up on the goddamn poster. Leonard Nimoy could not talk them out of that. So what should have been just as equally of a nut punch as Spock's death completely wasn't because by this point, Paramount had no clue what a plot twist. Well, I mean, it's it's like the uh, the movie trailers video I did. They don't care. It's more important to uh, convince people to go see the movie than to actually have something in there that's a surprise. They'd rather ruin the big event because they think that it'll get asses in the seats. And unfortunately, it works a lot of times. And it's just, it's just irritating and frustrating, and I hate that they do that. I mean, they've been doing that for years. It's nothing new. But you think that they would be able to put together something and not show something that monstrous. Okay, here's, holy crap, the Enterprise blowing up. I mean, that... Can you imagine going in and not knowing and seeing that happen? It would just freak, it would freak everybody. It would be amazing. The Enterprise blowing up was something that I didn't expect because they have Enterprises and all the others. That It was a wonderful plot point to have it blow up. A lot of people don't like this one. I really do like it. I think it's got... It's got a lighter tone than Wrath of Khan. I don't think anyone can deny that. It's a little bit more of a fun movie, although along with that lighter tone, you've got Klingon straight out murdering people, killing Starfleet officers, and then you have a scene of slapstick with the Excelsior literally breaking down in space like a car whose tranny has fallen through. You do have some tonal issues. There's a little bit of tonal whiplash in this movie. I enjoy this one. And I, I don't I don't ascribe to the fact of the of the odd even theory. The odd even theory is all the even numbered Star Trek movies are good, all the odd numbered Star Trek movies suck. And I think Star Trek Three proves that that is stupid. Yeah, it's I, just, I really it's, like Star Trek Three a lot. I think it's a quality film through and through, and I don't know why it's so hated. Doctor McCoy gets some of the best lines in the entire series in this one. I think the problem is that it's not as good as 2 or 4, so it must totally suck. But it's really its own independent – well, it's not an independent film, but it has its own story that's unique to it, and it does a great job with it. And you have Christopher Lloyd as a Klingon, which is pretty goddamn awesome. Uh, You also have John Larroquette as a Klingon. Yeah, 3, I think, is a very solid movie. I I think it's just – it's it's a cooler thing to say, oh, well, the even ones are good, but the odd ones are bad. And since there never was a seven of the original grouping, then they could, you know there wasn't anything to really disprove that. If seven would have come out and it would have been really good, then they you know that would have shot them in the foot. But so unfortunately, three kind of gets lumped in, and it, it shouldn't. Damn good movie. And th- three made a good amount of money. So. You'll notice that the Star Trek movies at this point are ballpark going every two years or so. The thing is, each Star Trek movie at this point is getting better and better returns, but Paramount is deciding for whatever reason, each one gets a smaller budget than the last one. Wrath of Khan had a smaller budget than Motion Picture. Search for Spock had a smaller budget than Wrath of Khan. And our next film, Star Trek IV The Voyage Home, has the smallest budget of actually any film in the franchise. And yet it's the one that made the most money. Because of the fact that it had such a relatively small budget, they were forced to do the time travel. We need to set it in contemporary Earth because a lot easier to shoot in downtown San Francisco than it is on a set that's supposed to be another planet. 
So you have the message movie. I think Star Trek for the Voyage Home works for the most part. It gets really, really preachy at a couple of points because you got to insert yourself into 1986 here. The whole save the whales thing was at its peak. And this was just echo, this was an echo chamber of the same stuff that was being said there to the point of almost becoming propagandist at a few points. But this one had great character interactions. It had great setups. But we do got to point out, this one also was kind of bold in a different way. We talked about how Star Trek III blowed the Enterprise up. So there isn't an Enterprise in this one. Stolen Klingon Bird of Prey as their ship in this one. I can't imagine with Jowski going, wait a minute, my first Star Trek film doesn't have the Enterprise in it? Wait, what? Star Trek IV was the first Star Trek I ever saw. My parents rented it. I was like, what, eight or nine? So that was my first introduction to anything Star Trek. So I didn't know that they were missing an Enterprise. I thought they just rode around in this beat-up, shitty little crap ship. I didn't know why they called it the Voyage Home, because I'm like, don't they just go around in this ship? You know, the final frontier and all that? Yeah, I, I liked uh, that they they took them back to the planet. I mean, a lot of it's been done to death, unfortunately, at this point. But them going back and also going back in time had a lot of funny moments. You know, there was the punk rocker in the bus that Spock does the uh, the Vulcan neck pinch on. Everybody Ironically enough, and, that is the singer of the band that's being played on his on his boombox at the time. Oh, that's awesome. The, the, the band was Edge, Edge of Etiquette. And the song is I Hate You. Oh, that's great. Uh, see, I love stuff like that. The, the, there was the message, but um, I don't know. It, it, it was a little heavy-handed, but it didn't bother me like some message movies do. I, I don't know. I guess it was, it was that fine line of it was heavy-handed, but they didn't beat you over the head with it. So uh, and it, it didn't really detract from the movie. They Scotty picking up the mouse and doing the you know, hello computer. And, and that was funny. It just it was a more uh, lighthearted film, but still enjoyable and not just a complete cheese fest. Well, and there, there's a I, I don't know if they ever shot this or if it was taken out of the script. But by the way, they frame Savick in her one scene at the beginning where she's saying goodbye to all of them. It was supposed to be the reason she was staying on Vulcan and not coming back with them was Savick was pregnant with Spock's child. Apparently, the very idea of that pissed Star Trek fans off to no end. So you'll notice you rarely see Savick in her couple of minutes of screen time from the neck down. I have a feeling they shot her with a big belly and went, we got to edit around this. This is just pissing Star Trek fans off to no end. I don't know. I don't know why that... uh... Why that would piss people off so much, whatever. I, I don't know. I think sometimes fans get a little too upset over stuff that could potentially have, have gone off to be cool. Like, um, and, and he how- would be a real crossbreed because Spock is half human, half Vulcan. Savick is half Romulan, half Vulcan. So that would make the kid half Vulcan, quarter human, quarter Romulan. Ugh. Talk about an outcast, huh? Yeah, really. Nobody would want him. <laughs> I don't know. It... it I get you know we'll never know because it didn't happen. So, but um, eh, it wouldn't have bothered me much. That's fucking stupid. See, you see, Cecil, that's that's what they were afraid of. Yeah, I I don't know. I guess maybe I'm too mellow. They were one story because two flows directly into three. Three flows directly into four. This was a trilogy, and I thought that was kind of ballsy for them to do with the movies because the TV series was never really all that continuity heavy. So for them to go continuity heavy with the movies, that was kind of ballsy, actually. I liked the the whole Genesis story arc, which it it flows seamlessly between all three movies. I really appreciate it. And the fourth one, it's a stretch. It's barely still part of the Genesis story arc, except for at the beginning and at the end. I mean, to establish why they are way the f*** over here in this Klingon bird of prey. And at the end, when they come back and they're like, well, you blew up the Enterprise, Kirk, so we got to demote you. Well, and then this one made the most money of any film in the franchise up until the 2009 movie. And yet, for some reason, they waited three years this time to make Final Frontier, which... In this case, it's not they. With, with Final Frontier, it, there's no they. It's just Shatner. Well, well, but no, I mean they as 
they, Paramount, would not greenlight it because right after the voyage home is when Star Trek The Next Generation launched on TV. So that's where their focus was, was getting the new TV series going. And the old cast kind of was old hat. And then so eventually Shatner's ego got them to make Star Trek V The Final Frontier, which I think is the second worst maybe third worst film in the franchise. This movie's a disaster on every level. Shatner's ego is run amok in this movie. The plot is insanely stupid. The budget was not even close to what he needed. Even if his ego wasn't running amok, the budget wasn't even close to what he needed to get things working. For instance, the whole that the Enterprise doesn't work properly thing, that was because they didn't have the budget to build all of the sets that they needed, so they said... The Enterprise is broken. That's why it looks like this. This movie was just a compromise from beginning to end, and I think every single moment of that shows up on the screen from the half-assed script to the egomaniacal director who was also the film's star to the fact that the story makes no sense to the fact that the special effects are weak to the fact that it outright contradicts the continuity that's already been set up before. I really do dislike this movie greatly. I don't mind it. I mean, yeah, they covered up the poor sets pretty good with the Enterprise being, you know, oh, it's broken. It it seemed like it fit with the story with the Enterprise being broken, as well as the contrivance of why they're sending this broken ship out there. I mean, it still kind of fit. The whole movie is basically Kirk. Everybody else is what can they contribute to Kirk? Well, that's because the story is written by Batner directed by Shatner, this is an ego trip of a movie that happens to have other Star Trek characters in it. I think even the same story would have worked if it was anybody but Shatner at the helm. I'll argue with that, but go ahead. I don't think that... um, I I don't dislike... Well, let me put it this way. I definitely think it is the worst of the original movies. I like this one less than uh the the first movie there are parts of it that i like but overall it's it's not something that i really enjoy it's not a movie that i have any inclination to go back and watch again i saw it twice and i think that's about all i can stomach so it's it's poorly directed because shatner was trying to um one up Nimoy like he was irritated because you know Nimoy came along and and did he came along and and directed them and did them very well and Shatner's ego got bruised so he insisted that he do five and five ended up being such a ridiculous disaster it it is a movie where even a lot of Trek fans are just kind of like five so I I think one of the problems that goes directly to your Shatner thing is Shatner is on record saying Two, three, and four were too dark. Even four, you know, it was light, but it it was still the message. He wanted to go back to the fun, swashbuckling adventure style of the old show. Basically made a goddamn comedy. Look at how many are supposed to be funny moments are in Star Trek V. He was making a Star Trek comedy, and that did not work at all. It worked in four. Four had plenty of comedy. Four did comedy right. Five was a disaster creatively, 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 but it made money. Not a lot of money, but it made money. So then we move on from this disaster that everyone wants to forget. We move on. Next Generation is doing great. As Next Generation's in its fourth season at this point, they make Star Trek VI the undiscovered country, or as most Star Trek fans call it, Star Trek VI the apology. That this film needs to be good to make up for what Star Trek V did not do right. And I think overall it does. It makes the Klingons badass again. It's a pretty decent mystery, although it doesn't make a lot of sense when you figure it out at the end. I think it's got a good tone and mood. McCoy gets a lot of great lines. Actually, all the characters... This this one, I think the fact that Shatner had his, had his ego bruised after V, this is less of a William Shatner movie... I actually think he gives up the most screen time in this to the other characters than in any of the films, in all honesty. Going to some Next Generation nerddom here. We'd always heard about the Kittimer Accords and the incidents that caused the peace between the Klingons and the Federation. Now we kind of get to see not the incident at Kittimer, but the road to that, as well as also getting 
the first little hints of Section 31, but that that's a that's a different thing for a different time. Star Trek VI is my favorite of the original movies after Khan. Uh, I think that it, it's just it's it's fun. It's well done. Uh, it was cool. It was paced really well. It was just a good movie, and it really, really was, like you said, an apology for five. It was like, no, look, see, we still know how to make good Star Trek movies. And, we, just gotta, uh, we, just, we just have to take Shatner out of the, out of the decision-making process. Exactly, you know? And it, it's great. I, that one I've seen a whole bunch of times, and I've always enjoyed it. I really do love Star Trek Six. It's fantastic. And this was coming out during the height of the next generation popularity and it really bridges the stories between the two i mean you get in one case literally because do you notice who kirk and mccoy's defense attorney is during the trial it's colonel wharf played by michael dorn so that's i noticed Worf, that that's Worf like from Worf's next generation's dad. grandfather as kirk and mccoy's defense attorney oh we're at peace with the klingons and this explains how we get you know what started that peace you know, it bridges a lot, and visually it, you know, ties in a lot because the Enterprise in 6 looks a lot different from the classic Enterprise. And there's a wide, wide variety of alien crew members aboard the Enterprise in this time round. Like every other Star Trek, it's humans and Spock. But but this one also had another departure. Some of the characters actually grew. Like the fact that Sulu is now a captain. Well, I mean, he was a captain in 5, but... Sulu is now a captain of his own ship and seems to be holding his own pretty well. Let's leave out the stupidity of Tuvok being on the ship from Voyager because no one gives a crap about that. This one actually had the characters maturing as characters. It was really good. because Remember, this was supposed to be the send-off. This was supposed to be the last appearance of these characters. Not in continuity because Spock, Scotty, and McCoy all appeared on Next Generation, but the last time chronologically, you were going to see these characters. It feels like a great send-off, too. It does. And then, let's go back to the Savick thing I talked about. Remember Kim Cattrall's character in this? How she's that Vulcan who betrays the Federation? That was supposed to be Savick. Again, fans were pissed that they would make Savick a traitor. So they had to rewrite the character to not be Savick. I'm a little rusty, but didn't they make it where uh, she was she was either under mind control or something? No. What? But okay. Well, Spock. I I, I remember because it, granted, it's been a while. Since Sp- I've seen Spock it. had to mind Spock meld with to her mind to, to get her. the name of the assassin. Right. That, okay, that's what I'm thinking of. So. And uh, did you also notice some of those stranger cameos in this, such as the assassin is Odo, the president of the Federation is Clarence Boddicker. And Christian Slater is one of the main officers on Sulu's ship. Well, that was because his mother was the casting agent, and he had always wanted to be in a Star Trek movie. So mm-hmm. they kind of snuck him in there as just a little uh, part. I mean, you barely it's even... It's still a cool little cameo, though. Oh, no, no, no. It's, it's awesome. I'm gl- like, he, him being in that is fine. I don't have an issue with this that. This is also like the height of Christian Slater's career, too. Exactly. And I'm not talking like where in one where they threw in a bunch of nobodies because they were director, producer, son, nephew, whatever. This was a case of Christian Slater had been around Star Trek his whole life and he wasn't cast in the movie, but he wanted to actually be in the movie. And I think that's awesome. I think any of us in that situation would probably wanted to have done the same thing because really you don't even see him you just kind of see like the outline of him and there's that voice that you you know you immediately know who it is Uh, yes the the voice which i like to describe as fake teenage nicholson i like star trek 6 and i thought it was a good send-off and then next generation keeps going for a while next generation's going strong like i said you've got after this you've got spock appearing on next generation dr mccoy was in the pilot and then you had the episode with scotty which was a major contradiction that we're just about to get to and then in 1994 they decided star trek the next generation is off the air so we need to start making next generation movies but we don't want to just make a next generation movie let's make a handoff where we have classic trek handing the baton over to next generation and that was the disaster that was Star Trek Generations. This film, unfortunately, they let Shatner have his ego back 
They let him have decision-making power again. Star Trek Generations is an absolute mess. It's, it's another one of those movies where, just like Star Trek The Motion Picture, this is a Kirk, Data, Picard movie. Every other character is just there to move Kirk, Data, and Picard's story along. The, the villains, Lursa and Bator, yes, I know they were on Deep Space Nine and Next Generation, but they were just cardboard cutouts in this. Malcolm McDowell was almost cartoonishly supervillainy to the point of being irrelevant. The script made no sense. I thought Generations was a complete disaster on every single level. I hated this film. I don't. I like Generations. I I, I do think that it's uh, it's obvious that they they wanted to work Shatner into it a little bit too much because for crying out loud, he dies a hero twice in the freaking movie. There's also an obvious production problem with one of the cast members in this too. What's that? It was supposed to be Kirk, Scotty, and McCoy on the Enterprise B. And they never even bothered to change the line when Chekhov, get down to sickbay. You and you, you are our nurses. That's clearly supposed to be McCoy. Oh, yeah. Why is Chekhov running (laughs) sickbay? Yeah, but it is true. But eh, it's funny. It's still, I I like it. It was a little wonky for uh, for the start of the next generation movies but i i think that it was it was cool it did a lot of stuff uh showing a little bit more character development with the next generation crew and um uh data with the uh, emotion ship and i don't know i think that there were a lot of cool parts to it and uh, i don't i don't think it's bad at all okay generations is very important to me i mean a, a sentimental spot because my mother was a huge fan of The Next Generation. She'd just, you know, if it wasn't on TV, she was watching the VHSs of them. That was the last movie she ever watched in theaters. And she loved it. So it's very hard for me to hate it because of how, how important it is in my life. And I can understand that. I'm not bitching at you about that. But yeah. can, can the film, it does, can you the film how bad in the film is on an actual production level? Star Trek if they were going to do it so sloppy. I mean, you already had that episode where they found Scotty floating around and he's asking where Kirk is. Yeah, and it's like, then, well, that takes place after this, so that Scotty should have already known that Kirk is dead. Oh, wait, I totally forgot. He, he was taken away by the big pink shit. I did like the way it explored the characters a bit, because you get Data's emotion chip, and like you do get the good Picard from the show because as we'll get into the Picard yes. of the rest of the movie. I wasn't going to bring that still, up yet because that's not relevant yet. This is still emotion, emotional, but still strong thinking man's Picard. He, and it's, it brings in a lot of the stuff from the, the series, like those two Klingon bitches. Lursa and Bator. Yeah. Brings them in, paid a lot of tribute to the series and get, brought in a lot of the good stuff from the show. But at Just, the same, it didn't need the Kirk stuff. But then at the same time, you have one of the big problems with this is a problem that will continue throughout the rest of the Next Generation movies. Picard and Data are the stars. That these are movies about about Captain Picard and Data. Everyone else is just there to move Picard and Data's story along. We will see this more in the next four movies, the next three movies as well, that Picard and Data are the stars – Everyone else is supporting cast. And I think that is a really thing to do to an ensemble series. Well, uh, I mean, it's it's down to the point of where, yes, I mean, they were the more popular characters. And that was the storylines that they decided to focus on. Uh, there were um, the other cast members were supporting and Riker uh, had given up a lot of his time because he was directing the movies. So Gates, uh, McF- Gates McFadden had a quote that, of course, she had to redact, you know, re- retract. But she gave a quote to Starlog or something when the movie came out. I don't know why I am even in this movie. I'm not in the movie. That basically, why is Doctor? Why didn't you just write Doctor Crusher out of the film if you don't want to give me a goddamn thing to do? It happens, you know, unfortunately, it's it's a shame, but they felt that uh, the way that they were going to do the stories, they didn't want to too much to involve all the additional characters. And the thing is, honestly, watching them, I mean, yeah, they're all there and they all do different things during the courses of the film. But it is essentially 
mostly Picard and uh, and Data doing things. You also have uh, you you learn the lesson: never let Deanna Troy drive, otherwise she'll wrap the Enterprise around a planet. <laughs> then by 1996, we get Star Trek: First Contact, which I think is the be- easily easily the best of all the Next Generation movies. This time they said, you know what? We don't have to do the bridge anymore. We don't, you know, we're not even going to try to appeal to the mainstream audience anymore. This is a goddamn Star Trek movie. We're bringing the Borg back. And now th- by this point, the Borg had been completely pussified. Next Generation had turned them. They were not even close to being the Borg anymore at this point. W- with the Borg here, you got a new redesign, which was pretty cool. They actually, I can't remember if they hired H.R. Giger or just consulted with him. But the new Borg are H.R. Giger inspired. And I know he did some capacity on the film. I can't remember what, though. But H.R. Giger redesigned Borgs. This time, the movie is a is a horror film. At least all the stuff on the Enterprise is a horror film, straight out. This is an Invasion of the Body Snatchers film. Unfortunately, again, it's a Picard Data story. I mean, hell, Riker and all the ones trapped on Earth with Cochrane, that's clearly the B story in this movie. I think First Contact was a fantastic film. It flowed great. It was exciting, had great effects, good character moments. The ending's a little contrived, but whatever. They actually even made a good excuse, because by this point, Worf was on Deep Space Nine. So they had to kind of, how are we going to get Worf into this from Deep Space Nine? How about having the Defiant there ripping a Borg Cube's asshole out like it was made to do? Because to go a little Deep Space Nine, the Defiant was made as a Borg killer. And then Cisco made it even more badass when he added a blade of armor and the cloaking device. So when you've got Worf flying Ben Sisko's motherfucking pimp hand, I mean the USS Defiant, into a Borg ship, that's what it was made to do. Did you notice one bit of interesting continuity with getting Worf and his crew from the Defiant onto the ship? They were still wearing Deep Space Nine uniforms throughout the movie, while everyone else had Next Generation uniforms. I thought that was a nice bit of continuity that they still differentiated the uniforms that these are Cisco's people, these are Picard's people. That's nice. It's nice that they, they took the, the, the time and effort and actually you know made sure they, they had the continuity right. I thought they did a great job of uh, bringing the Borg back in a big way and making them like a formidable foe again. Although the Borg screen, I think, is a, was, a, was a mistake, but... No, I I liked Alice Creed. I thought she did a, a great job of kind of having. I don't uh, mean performance. I mean the idea of a Borg queen is kind of dumb in what the Borg were supposed to be. Uh, I I don't know. I liked it. I I thought it was cool, and I thought that you know she did a, a good job with it and make you know doing the whole thing of making data turning him into, you know, having him have elements of humanity by putting skin on him and whatnot, I thought was cool. Which and, blew on uh, his army almost came. I, I think he did, actually. But I liked how, you know, Zephram Cochran, he wasn't this hero. He was a drunk who was just kind of doing this for money. But then he did kind of realize that the, the, everything that he was working on was but bigger than him. And he did listen to Steppenwolf. He did listen to Steppenwolf. And he listened to, there was some other band that I, I, I didn't, don't remember what it was that they kept playing that whatever in the bar. I, I like the pacing of it. It was it was very fast. It was cool. Uh, and it definitely this is a next generation movie, whereas the first one they were trying. Well, generations, they were trying to bridge the gap between the two series. This was, hey, this is absolutely a fan or uh, this is absolutely a movie for next generation fans. This is 100 percent next generation. We're not you know going back to the original series again. Are you astronauts on some kind of Star Trek? First Contact was great. I watched that one in theaters on opening weekend and was like cheering right along with it. And it was one of those ones where I sat there just that rare time when, you know, this this movie is important. Future generations are going to talk about this movie. I mean, it's a great movie and it completely just gives everybody everything they wanted and the new enterprise in that one what is it f now e it was e e yeah well then after that we go we jump another two years to 1998 with insurrection which was a major disappointment 
This was another one that had a ton of script rewrites. They were rewriting the film as they were shooting it. Again, you can tell in the finished product. I I didn't hate Insurrection, but I didn't like it either. I thought Insurrection was a bland movie. It was a safe movie. And it was just trying... This Insurrection honestly felt to me like just a really big Next Generation episode. This didn't feel like a movie to me. I did not like Insurrection at all. That's all I got to say about this one. Okay, when I first saw it, I, I didn't even see this one in theaters. I rented it, and I still have the same video I rented, and oh, God knows how much late fees on him if those companies were still in business. It feels like a two-hour episode. It doesn't feel like a movie. It feels like an episode. I, I liked how uh, it was developing, or should I say redeveloping, Riker and Troy's relationship. I liked a lot of the in-jokes. It just felt more, for lack of a better word, comfortable. It did feel like a, a longer uh, episode, but I didn't feel like that was a bad thing. I thought it just no, felt like... Not a bad thing at all. Yeah. So, I, I think I think it did, because... They're becoming, they're getting more and more contrived in their ways of how we've got to get Worf in here, but he's on Deep Space Nine at the front line of the Dominion War. How do we work him into this? Uh, he, he's on a diplomatic mission and happened to be in the sector. Uh, uh, he's invited because it's it's Troy's wedding. Uh, uh, I thought that was one of the weakest parts is we're, we're not even going to really try to get Worf in here. Just he's here. Deal with it. it you know, to me, it was kind of contemptuous towards the audience. I'll agree just, with Cecil that it's comfortable. I mean, it 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 doesn't have any ill intent. It doesn't because it feels like, like an episode of the show. It, yeah, it feels like an episode of the show. And, you know, it does have good plot twists in it here and there. You know, that would have felt at home on the show. It is comfortable. There's nothing malicious about this movie. I don't think it was like a horrible ego trip, like Five or something like that. You know or had all the production problems that other movies had. You know, it's just, it works well on its own. Well, and then this, we also have to point out something that First Contact started, this film amped up and the next film takes to a ridiculous degree, is action movie Picard. This is where we start to get Jean-Luc Picard, not as a thinking man, not as a diplomat. He is a goddamn action hero at this point. I think that was a big mistake. If you got to give the action stuff, give it to Riker. Give it to Worf. But again, we can't do that. Why? This movie's all about Picard and Data. Again, everyone else is just there to move Data and Picard's story along. Well, from that, we go to what I think is actually the worst film in the entire franchise, not counting the reboots, is Star Trek Nemesis. This film had nothing going for it. Nemesis was terrible. Nemesis was, hey, Next Generation can be an action movie, right? And let's just piss on all of the continuity. Let's completely destroy the Romulans, which, by the way, this movie completely discounts where the Romulan Empire was on Deep Space Nine at this point and says, yeah, we didn't want to deal with that. So, yeah, the, the whole Dominion thing didn't happen. This film is a train wreck. I think Nemesis is an exemplifier of everything wrong with trying to make the Star Trek movies action films. Again, you've got Data and Picard as your main characters, and much older Data, too. Brent Spiner was starting to show his age at this point, and it was becoming obvious that Data is getting older. I thoroughly hated this film. Seriously, out of all of the Star Trek films, including the reboots... This is the only movie I've only seen one time because I just felt I never needed to see this again after I saw it in the theater. I hated Star Trek Nemesis. I, you've seen it more than I have. I've seen huge chunks of it. I can't even sit through the whole thing. I mean, it starts off talking about Romulus's sister planet, Remus. And I'm like, what, like Romulus and Remus of the – Roman mythology? How, why would the they name their planet after that? They How also, would they even know uh, also, about that? Also, Alex, why would that never have been mentioned in Classic Trek, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, any of the other movies? Why would all of a sudden there be this extra race of Romulans that's never been mentioned before but are really, really important? Oh, because it's been hiding in the shadow the whole time. That's why we never knew about it. Oh, bullshit. The whole 
you know, I could understand if this was just a regular villain, that this was just one sociopathic bad guy. When, oh, he's a clone of Picard, that's when I'm like, oh, fuck you. Well, what the studio did was, after Insurrection being not so much of an action movie, being more slower paced, they wanted to have their Wrath of Khan. So they, you know, they did uh, this one just did nothing but piss off a lot of people. Uh, I only have ever seen it once. I saw it in the theater. Now, like I said, I have the Blu-ray and I have not watched it again since. I didn't dislike it. I just remember it being weak, but I I did like parts of it. And I really um, I'm looking forward to being able to see it again. And uh, I, I just I feel kind of sad, actually not even kind of. I feel very sad that now there's not going to be another next generation film because I feel like even if I end up kind of enjoying uh, Nemesis, I don't think it was the right movie for them to kind of go out on. Uh, Six, uh, Undiscovered Country, felt like a really good end for the original Trek. You pointed out they wanted their Wrath of Khan. They go about this going, okay, we're going to kill Data, yeah! Only we're going to replace him with his own essential clone and give him data's memories so we don't even have the balls to leave him really dead for a movie like they did with spock this movie is all about everything the audience they think the audience wants they want action we give them action does it make sense who cares that they want they want obvious soap opera tropes that's what we'll give them this movie is cookie cutter the movie star cookie cutter the star trek movie I mean, you you can't just have, well, we're going to try again because First Contact was really good. I think that they're trying to do is not have another con, but have another First Contact. That's why they bring in the Romulans are popular bad guys. Let's do stuff with them. I think, but ne- I think Nemesis they, was a mistake on every level. It was a Then they, they also steal right out of con the fact that, oh, they're trapped in some cloud or whatever. Nemesis is a terrible film. Then the, the, the movie series and all the TV series, because Enterprise doesn't count, went into hibernation. And then in 2009, J.J. Abrams brought the the news reboot, which was actually pretty good. And he did it in a really witty way by saying, we're not rebooting everything. This is an alternate universe, and your Spock still exists. All that continuity still happened. Well, this that's... is just a, a side universe, which I thought was a great idea. It's I actually... fucking brilliant, because... The fans were going to hate a reboot no matter what he did. Rebooting the characters they love. These are new versions of the classic characters. He's like, these are the same characters, but now they're in an alternate universe. So you're still – Trek, I haven't touched that canon at all. That still exists and happened the way you remember it. This is just you know, something else. Except Spock is no longer in that canon because he's stuck in this universe. I, I like the reboot, and I did not expect to like it at all. I thought that they they did a smart thing by making it uh, be an alternate universe because then, like Alex said, it didn't replace the original. It's just like, okay, well, this is an alternate universe and we're seeing this story. Everything else that happened, it still happened, but this is this version. And I thought it was cool. Uh, I did think, and I know it's kind of become a joke, they went a little too nutsy with the lens flares, but um, I thought the story was solid. Uh, it was a cool way of really doing things. And I was impressed. I, I liked it a lot. I would have rather, I still would have rather there have been another variation of Trek. But I guess it's, uh, as it was, I thought it was cool. See, I enjoyed the movie. It's got tons of plot holes in it. But fair enough, I still enjoyed it. I mean, hell, I enjoyed Prometheus. And that movie is it's basically plot hole the movie. And I still enjoyed that. Well, this one was incredibly successful. So then we move into its sequel, which is arguably one of the worst films in the franchise. Into Darkness sucked ass. First of all, J.J. Abrams lied to us. He specifically said, I am not remaking Wrath of Khan, except for the fact that the movie is a remake of Wrath of Khan. So that was the first issue. The second is, if the first film had plot holes... This film was a plot hole. Nothing in nothing a character does in this film makes sense. If you think about this movie for even a second, Into Darkness completely falls apart on every single level. I know you have not seen this one, Cecil, so Alex, 
they had a good idea of what they were doing. The oh, you mean ex- remaking Wrath of Khan? Not necessarily remaking Wrath of Khan, which it is a remake of Wrath of Khan. Despite but, how despite how much J.J. Abrams insisted he was not remaking Wrath of Khan. But the story they have and the way that the Khan fits into that story, they had a good idea. They executed it so awful, though. I mean, there's so many plot holes, and they're trying so hard to be just like Wrath of Khan instead of just being its own movie they kill kirk and have that fucking terrible plot hole to bring him back at the end of the movie it's which has implications that mean there will be no more movies cecil since you haven't seen this do you mind some spoilers or not eh go ahead at the end of the movie they find out that khan's blood can cure death kirk has been irradiated he's been dead for over an hour he and dies a- the same way that spock does yes. for the same reason and does. They, they inject him with Khan's blood and it brings him back. No brain damage, nothing. The implication now is they have cured death. There is no more death in Star Trek. All they need to do is give every Starfleet officer, a, and they do say they synthesized it, synthesized Khan blood to carry on them at all times, and no one in Starfleet will ever die again. That is the stupidest goddamn ending ever what they need to do is just part three kirk is dead and he's just discovering that he's dead it's like the sixth sense in star trek to, to, to kind of like fix that fuck up at the end of two here and it's terrible but they could come up with something where they find out that uh oh well it, it cured death but now uh it uh, makes your asshole fall out right you know now you you you're pink socking yourself and, uh, you know, it makes life very uncomfortable. Or um, we used it on Kirk and it worked, but then everybody else that we used it on, it didn't work because they didn't have irradiated blood. That, that'll be it. Because he died from radiation uh, and they used the blood on him, that made it okay for him to come back. But anybody no, else... No, because they tested it on a Tribble that died of natural causes and the Tribble came back to life too. No, but what I'm saying is that the triple that'll come back to life, it'll only last like a couple weeks and then it'll die again. It's a, I, it's an insanely stupid ending. I'm oh, it's terrible. But I'm just saying they they can write themselves out of the corner. I, I don't agree. But so right now it looks like the Star Trek franchise in general is up in the air because there's no TV series anymore that are on the air. Again, no one ever counted Enterprise, and hell, the series finale of Enterprise didn't count Enterprise. So they're there's no Star Trek out there. They are making a third one of these. I don't know how they're going to do it. It seems like the franchise of Star Trek is essentially over outside of the comic books. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I truly don't. I don't think that it will ever completely go away. Uh, it's they, they do have a lot riding on the third movie, but all it takes is the right combination for them to bring it back like they could sit on it for a while like let's say the next movie doesn't do well and they decide to stop they'll sit on it for a little while and then kind of pull their resources and come back with another cool idea and i i think probably a better you know if the next one doesn't do well they should go back to television and i'm pretty sure the next one's not going to do well because it's being written and directed by the guys that wrote the transformers two and three as much as I don't like Transformers 2 and 3, Transformers 2 and 3 made like $2 billion. But they weren't so, good. No, they weren't good. But what I'm saying is that that might, you know, it might end up being really good. You know, it might end up being really successful and consequently taking Trek in a bad direction. Oh, well, they want Transformers you know, uh, Star Trek movies. So we'll do it that way. So I, I don't know. I guess we'll just have to wait and see. I don't think the franchise is dead. I think that J.J. Abrams' Star Trek can exist in its own land doing whatever the hell they want. They always keep tossed around the idea of having a new Star Trek TV show. Alex, you're in Next Generation Times and you're in a gold shirt. Where can people find you? In engineering for geekjuicemedia.com. Cecil, you were on, you were on Voyager. Where where has Janeway sent you? Uh, Janeway has sent me to uh, Starfleet Academy, uh, which I would love a Dawson's Creek Starfleet Academy. And you can also find me at uh, geekjuicemedia.com. 
I want to be on Deep Space Nine, even though Cisco's technically ascended to the Prophets and Kira's running the station. I want to be on DS9. No. 1201beyond.com. Contact the show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. And I'm also at geekjuicemedia.com. Beam away, boys. Beyond production. Visit 1201beyond.com for more great shows.